Marketing Made Easy, the podcast. Now here are your hosts from Get Savvy Club, Anna Geary and Anita Baldwin. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Marketing Made Easy from the Get Savvy Club. Anna Geary and Anita Baldwin here today. How are you doing, Anita? Awesome. How are you, Anna? Yeah, really good. Thank you very much. So today we have a policeman, don't we? Ex-policeman with his uh, still had his hats in the background. Yeah, and he was like, "Why got those hats?" (laughs) He's an ex-police officer. Tell my wife just loves a man in uniform. (laughs) Yeah, just got that for her. (laughs) Yeah, that'll be worth. It was actually a thing to do, wouldn't it? And actually, it was quite. Uh, not embarrassing because we don't really get embarrassed, but what me and uh, me and Anita were talking about something quite inappropriate when he jumped on into our um stream. I yard was, room. didn't realize you he was were, in and, you were asking a very inappropriate question of me, and I don't know because when they jump into Streamyard, you don't know. Sometimes they hear the first bit. I was like, you didn't hear that, did you? Yeah, and you it didn't. Was along so the lines of Have you ever done? Would you ever? Would you ever? Yeah. We, um... <laughs> what, what followed wasn't really for the consumption of someone I've never met before. Yeah, and I think we did embarrass him a We'd little be bit. He did get a little bit embarrassed for that. So, mm. anyways, we often speak to people, don't we? That uh, start doing one thing in their life and then end up doing something different. But actually, the, the skills are transferable. So, if you're in a, in a job and you're like, "Oh, I've always only ever done this thing," like for example, he's a police officer. He'd done that since he went to do that from the age of sixteen, Cadets, didn't he? So he yeah, didn't so know. Twenty five, thirty and, years in the police. Yeah, you know anything else? And often people they think they are the thing they do, don't they? But if you do, then and you want to do something different, you totally can. I think the thing is to look at what the skills are that you Mm. use in your day-to-day job, not what the job is. Yeah. Because obviously in the police, you've got to have people skills and you've got to have management skills because he's like high up and managed a team and you've got to have organisational skills. And, you know, even if you're just working in a shop, you're dealing with people and complaints and problems and all of those skills are transferable to other things. You've just got to find your passion really and um what we all say is the passion is things you can't help meddling in anyway like Anna used to grab people's phones and do their social media yeah. for them because they weren't doing it right and I was yeah. always telling people you know how to do marketing because why don't you try this why don't you try that yeah exactly yeah. so and trying to help them get to the end goal so cool Let's get into it then, shall we? If you're enjoying Marketing Made Easy, the podcast from Get Savvy Club, use your podcast app to rate, review and subscribe. So my name is Colm Hay. I served 32 years in the UK police service, rising up to the rank of superintendent. Um, I was a goal commander. That means the highest level of operational command in terms of major critical incidents. I left policing, what, some two, uh, six years ago now, seven years ago. And ever since then, I have been involved in leadership my expertise if you like my specialism I hate using the word expert because it almost suggests that you can't grow any further it's used too much as well isn't it now yeah, yeah I know so my specialism is emotional intelligence so what I do is I work with leaders and I work with organizations to create culture change uh, in their organizations and I have to say that since 2020 I've been exceptionally busy because the the world has literally turned on its axis people are thinking differently now people expect different things we've had challenges like the great resignation where people are leaving their organizations in droves uh, we've had the biggest sort of uh, turnover of staff in in recent uh, history we've got uh, organizations struggling to recruit struggling to retain their talent and people have recalibrated their priorities quite frankly and now we are going into a winter of uh, a lot of mass strikes uh, with across the public sector strife in the private sector and i think you know striking is more than just about money it is about yeah. conditions it's about how we feel in our organization so 
quite simply, I work with organizations to create cultures that retain staff and they recruit talent into their organizations. I mean, money's important, obviously, but it becomes more mm. important when everything else in your workplace is crap as well. Oh, God, yeah. It? I mean, uh, I, I know plenty of stories. I've done loads of research. I know plenty of stories where people have literally left their organizations either to work for another organization that pays them less but makes them feel more valued, yeah. mm -hmm. or literally they've left their organization with no job to go to. Uh, I did a diagnostic, cultural diagnostic uh, uh, research, piece of research in a, in a healthcare organization at the start end of this year. And it was quite shocking, really, how many people were leaving either to lesser paid jobs or leaving entirely with zero jobs to go to and mm -hmm. saying, you know what, I'll find something. But I'd rather be there for my mental health than where I am right now. That's when your uh, organisational culture is in trouble, when people oh God, leave you, and you say, what, what have you got? And you go, I'm just going to get something else. At some you're point. so right, Anita. And, and the, the frustrating thing is there are still so many organisations that either – put the blinkers on and they put the blindfolds on and they sort of go la 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 and hope that this will, will go away. Not realizing that the world has completely changed, you know, since we went into lockdown. And for the first time in our lives, we were forced to work from home. I think we were so close to death, in inverted commas, because death is what we heard about on a daily basis in the in the briefings. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs talks about, you know, the basic human needs that any human being needs. And at the very bottom level is food and water, because without that, we'd die. And then it's about safety and security. After that, it's about finding relationships around you. And then it's about finding your place in society. And then it's about self-actualization. So many, many people just before lockdown were probably at self-actualization. They'd got everything. They'd got their, their family. They'd got their, their friends. They'd got their houses. They'd got their jobs. And now they're probably thinking, hey, do you know what? I want to do some charity work or I, I want to go and buy that car that I've always wanted, that Ferrari. We were laughing about mm. supercars early on. And very often we call that the midlife crisis. I call it the midlife opportunity. But that self-actualization, then everything came tumbling down almost overnight when we went into lockdown. People started rushing into stores, buying toilet rolls, disinfectant, bleach. And that, for me, was symbolic of how everybody went right back down to the very basic human need of survival. And many of us have been stuck in that mode of survival because we keep hearing about fearful things like uh, COVID, and then the flu. And then we've heard about, you know, this pandemic or this epidemic that might be hitting us. And then we've got the bird flu, and then we've got the cost of living, then we've got the war in, uh, in Ukraine. So if you think about it, we've been drip fed fear over the last two years. So a lot of people are thinking, hey, you know, when I, went, when I go into an organization, I work a third of my life. I want to work in an organization where I feel psychologically safe. Yeah. And to feel psychologically safe, I need to feel valued, appreciated, heard and seen. And if I'm not getting one, any, any one of those four things or all of those four things, ideally, it's not the place for me to stay. When I work with organizations, I say you, need, you really need to, A, understand your values and secondly, live your values and then understand what diversity truly means. Diversity is way more than representations, which is the kind of stuff that we've been talking about for the last 20, 30, 40 years in when it comes to diversity, that we need X percent of women, X percent of black and brown people. Ticking boxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's tokenism. You know, there's a danger yeah, yeah. with representation that it can become very tokenistic. The true essence of why you would want X percent women, black, white, brown, gay, straight. The reason why you want those is that they bring a different kind of thinking. But if your organization doesn't value cognitive difference, thinking difference, thinking diversity, 
then actually you're not diverse at all. It doesn't matter, therefore, mm. how many women you've got, how many black and brown people you've got, how many uh, gay, straight, lesbian, and all of the other LGBTQ plus eyes that you've got. It doesn't matter because you're not welcoming thinking diversity, thought diversity. Yeah, and I was reading an article actually quite recently about some of the big tech firms over in America are realising that because they recruit out of the top universities, they're actually creating an echo chamber where they're not having fresh thinking. So now they're looking to go into people that might not have been to MIT and done, you know, an IT, whatever qualification, but people are actually genuine, like innovative thinkers from different backgrounds. Absolutely. I mean, I I am uh, launching a programme next year, which is all around youth leadership. So I want to create the leaders of the future. If you think about it now and you look at some of the most senior leaders in this uh, in this country right now, whether it's in politics or, or in this industry, they tend to have led a very similar kind of life. Those that yeah. haven't stand out, you know, the likes of Richard yeah. Branson will stand out because he didn't have that typical sort of leadership upbringing. And look how he stands out in life and the kind of decisions that he makes. So I want to create a program where, I I want to target through a very intensive leadership program. I want to target those children, those young people who have lived their lives in care, either in foster care or children's homes. Uh, Those who have almost been written off by society and, you know, perceived never to become the leaders and the, 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 you know, the decision makers of society. I want to create decision makers from them because I think that they will make different decisions. I think that they will bring in this cognitive diversity that we absolutely need in the United Kingdom. And we need it in the United Kingdom more so than ever before, because we are literally the island again, where we are no longer part of the EU. We are having to resort to our own talents within our own island to make our place in the world. And leadership is at the very, very forefront. I think leadership is going to be the key thing. Leadership, relationship building, empathy, and emotional intelligence, they're all interlinked. But I think these are going to be the key things that we're going to be looking for from people from 2023 onwards. So I'm really interested in how this came about. It feels very different from being a policeman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, it's not. Uh, If Mm. you think about it, um, the role of a police officer... Now, it's all changed, and I have some strong views on this. Now, to become a police officer, you have to go to university. You have to get a degree. Mm. And that's all well and good. And I understand why they're doing that, because what mm. I, I remember the discussions when I was a police officer. You know, we went into very often strategic discussions, and they'd be saying, hey, we want to professionalize policing. We want to put policing at the same level of doctors and nurses where they have to get degrees. The downside of this is that you're missing out on the essential communication building skills, what we used to call common sense, what I call emotional intelligence. So when I cut my teeth in policing, I joined at the age of 16 as a police cadet. I only had four O-levels. As a 16-year-old, I had to go and live in a hostel for Down syndrome people. I lived in there for eight weeks and and Mm -hmm. lived and breathe and worked with them and cared for them. I then went to a Cheshire home where people were in palliative care, people with advanced multiple sclerosis. I was exposed to that. I went to work in a mortuary. I went to work in the accident emergency department and saw people whose lives had been ripped apart being taken into the hospital. Nothing was spared from me. I wasn't um, mollycoddled in that way, but I I learned an awful lot about people. I learned how to build relationships. I learned how to talk to people. I learned empathy to see things from other people's perspectives. And that, for me, I think were the fundamental skills that took me through policing in terms of the job that I did, but also they made me the leader that I was. Now, the downside 
with uh, the culture that I experienced within policing is that because it's a uniform organization, the tendency can be for it to become a hierarchical organization. And therefore, mm. you tend to get a hierarchical kind of leadership. For me, I learned straight away that, A, I wasn't your typical police officer. If you ever did a Myers-Briggs test on me, a typical cop in that, those days were ESTJ. I was literally opposite, the polar opposite of that. I was an INFP, and I have been for the last 20, 25 years. I've done that test on myself so many times, and I remain an INFP. To so, uh, those listeners that are like, what on earth? Yeah, so, so I mean, ESG, Just give a brief overview of what that is. You're very driven by logic, very driven by your, your external circumstances around you, extroverted. You take energy from people around you. You have to talk things out loud. Whereas introverted, which is what I was, I was very introspective, reflective. I wouldn't be the first one to speak up in meetings. I probably wouldn't speak many, many uh, social gatherings, but individual relationships that I built with people were deep. So I'm very good at building deep individual one-to-one relationships. And I still operate that way because I know Mm -hmm. that's who I am. So there's no point in me turning up to a networking meeting and trying to be that person, try and pretend to be that extroverted person because I'm not that. And yet it doesn't hold me back either. You know, I I have delivered over like 200 keynotes addresses over the last two years. I've stood up on stages in front of uh, a thousand people. I have got people so energized from the dance uh, from the uh, stage that I've had them dancing. That's what we do in our annual event. Introversion is 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 not a weakness. It's just a different way of being and thinking. Absolutely. So I'm very intuitive. I'm very feeling, very perceptive. So for me, gut instinct is very very important in life. So I was at the polar opposite of all my senior peers, and I realized that I needed to feed off my strengths to be the leader that I was. So for me, emotional intelligence stood at the very core of who I was, and it continues to do today. And, you know, I'm now a member of the Institute of Social Emotional Intelligence. There's a lot of people out there talking about emotional intelligence, but they don't understand social emotional intelligence in perhaps the way that I do. We break Mm. it down beyond the four quadrants of self-awareness, self-management, social awareness and relationship management, we break it down to 26 competency areas. So I work with all sorts of leadership teams to understand at an individual and a collective level what their emotional intelligence is and then what they can do, which of the competencies they can build up to actually raise their overall profile. So how does a company um, recognise what are the triggers that make them think, actually, we need to do something about this, we need to get somebody in to help us? Well, in the current climate, the biggest trigger, Anita, is something that we've already talked about, and that is turnover yeah if you have got turnover and you cannot put your finger on it why are people leaving the organization and they might say all sorts of things i have got a better opportunity here i just want to grow i just want to get experience elsewhere uh, or i'm just not happy with the workplace there's all sorts of excuses but if you notice that your turnover is increasing you need to start investigating them and second one would be if your grievance levels in your organization are increasing you need to get down and understand that and understand why it's happening but i'll bet you pound to pinch of salt that what's going on is there is some disconnect within your culture whether it's it's a, a disconnect of trust between leadership and frontline, whether it's a, a disconnect of communication or whether it's individual team working practices, there is something going on that's not quite right. And if you are leading an organization and it tends to be the executive level that have the f- the, 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 the more strategic view of the organization in terms of where the, what kind of organization they want to create, where they want to go. 
if you understand where it is that you want to go, but you now understand that what's going on in your organization is not going to get you there, there's a significant gap, then you need to reach out to somebody who's going to help you to support your organization to build the kind of culture that it has. And for me, I always say that if you've got a healthy culture, then you've also got a greater likelihood of sustained uh, performance improvement. You don't want peaks and troughs when it comes to improvement. There's a lot of people out there say, hey, I'll come in, I'll inject, I'll inject yeah. this performance. Uh, but that's short-lived, you know? Mm. You don't want that. And and very often the style of leadership that you need to inject performance is probably a coercive leadership style. It's probably what I call it a dissonant leadership style. So there's two styles on the spectrum. There's dissonance and there's resonant. Dissonant means pushing somebody away from you or pushing somebody towards something. And resonant leadership styles are about pulling people towards something or pulling people towards you. Dissonant leadership styles, there are two subcategories, and one would be coercive. So that's a very command and control like kind of leadership style. That's like, you know, what what we could do in the police service. And very often I saw senior leaders doing, and, you know, it used to frustrate me. Uh, you can see my cap behind me. That was the cap that I wore when I was a, a superintendent. It's got a silver braid on it. Now, any cop seeing that would say, oh, this is a senior police officer. Uh, and I could rely on the crowns on my shoulder, on this insignia, on the cap that I wear to say, hey, you do what I tell you to do. You go there, you go there, you go there. So that's one dissonant leadership style. The second one would be what we call the pace setting leadership style, where you sort of lead from the front and you go 100 miles an hour and you expect everyone to keep up with you. Now, both of those leadership styles are relevant. They are relevant when you are in a fast-moving, dynamic, critical situation where things need to get done. No time for discussion. Things need to get done. The danger, however, is that many, many organizations, and particularly in, in healthcare, what have we found is that during the pandemic in healthcare, they went in for the coercive and the pace-setting leadership styles, which was absolutely relevant and, 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 and necessary in that moment. But unfortunately, what I'm hearing is that Many healthcare organizations are now stuck in that coercive leadership style. They've not dropped their leadership style into alternatives. Like the four alternatives would be visionary leadership style where you set the vision and you trust people to come along the way with you and you you impart that trust on, onto them. Now, that's a leadership style that we should have switched on anyway all the time democratic leadership style where you you seek the views of the people around you. I used mm -hmm. to say all the time, I don't hold a monopoly on good ideas. I've not been made a leader just because I know everything. That's not who I am. Affiliative leadership style would be where there are times in your leadership journey where you have to put the people first. For me, in a very simple example would be, you know, I've got a major incident that's going on and I've got, um, it's, it's, it's cold weather like it is right now. I've got my staff pulling a cordon around this area in the middle of the night. And I know that they're going to be cold. And I know that if I don't turn my staff around, it's not going to be good for their health. So I'd either uh, hire it from the council, a tea wagon that would go around so they can get hot cups of tea, or I'd make sure if I had enough staff, I'd make sure that I, I roll those stuff around so they can actually go back in uh, and put their feet up for a short while or get them some police vehicles to sit in all sorts of things. That's affiliative. And finally, there's a coaching leadership style where you work with your teams and you work with individuals in your team and you get them to look deeper within themselves to find solutions that they have questions for. And I work on the philosophy that wherein lies a challenge 
also lies a solution. And that's a simple philosophy that I have. So whenever we focus in on a problem, what we sometimes make the mistake of doing is getting really focal around that problem. So if you look at a problem big enough, it might start off as a tiny molehill, but eventually it grows in your mind to an insurmountable mountain. It's Mm -hmm. about becoming solution focused and a coaching leadership style will help you to become more solution focused. And suddenly all these uh, ideas start coming to you. I mean, I've got a coaching session later on today with a, a senior leader from a university. And I know that she's going to come with some challenges, but what I'm going to do is not give the solutions to her. I'm going to get her to find her own solutions because I know that she knows that they are in there, but she's created barriers to prevent herself from getting where she needs to get to. Yeah. And let's face it, you know, it's very nice to want your staff to be happy and to be involved and to feel valued. But at the end of the day, it will make them more productive and your company will be more successful. Um, And that's why it's so important, isn't it? Yeah, It's it's right what you say about um, people never say the actual real reason first. And often people just take that first reason that anyone says is face value like oh you know actually i've took a job that's closer to home okay that's cool that's what that's why i think he's leaving you often do though don't you a lot don't because they don't like conflict they don't like conflict they don't like they don't want to a lot of people are so uncomfortable with conflict that they just want to go they just, just want to go, go. Yeah. Uh, and so they'll make up all anything just to get out of that yeah. door. Because we're in recruitment. So many places yeah. don't do exit interviews as well. No, they so don't even bother. Yeah, they don't do a proper. Yeah. They don't do it in, and, and also they can be quite intimidating, and they're with the yeah. wrong type of people, and so you don't get the answers. So when when I was in recruitment, exactly that they tell us the recruitment consultants because we're trying to find them a new job. All these bad things about this company maybe we we actually recruit for that company as well so then obviously mm-hmm. you know we've found somebody else a job and then they're going oh we need another one of these we're like we know but so many businesses just don't aren't even open to even knowing about it's that sad. So they're uh, just like someone left that's the reason we'll move and it's like actually if you're not noticed i've been in situations before where i was a, i won't say the company but it's a large profile company here in Leicestershire. we were one of three preferred suppliers that recruited for this company mm-hmm. and they brought all three of us all three recruitment agencies in and sat us down and they were like why are people leaving and all three of us although we were all completely different agencies we all said the same thing we we're like well actually it's this 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 and they, they went well we don't think that is it <laughs> then we just continued and that's it and do you we know were, why they, we were like do you know why do you they know do what? that Anna? the reason yeah. why they do that because they know or they believe that it's going to take a hell of a lot of work to fix mm. the problem yeah so if they think oh my cult our culture's broken but my goodness in order for us to fix the culture it's going to take forever or it's going yeah. to take some really hard work or some very uncomfortable conversations well okay if that's what you feel then bring a consultant in who can do it for you yeah. You know, consultants do work at various levels. They can come in, they can do a diagnostic for you. They can tell you what your problems mm. are and, and then leave you to fix the problems with, a, with a, a template in terms of recommendations as to what you need to do. But if that feels uncomfortable for you, then just keep that consultant on saying, okay, can you bring that in and maybe allow them to take in some of your staff so you can have a little project team and make those changes happen. It's so, probably better when it's an external person as well, because you're coming oh, I, without yeah. all the baggage, without all yeah. the, you know, all oh, this person person said this and what about when that happened and I remember I mean I worked for a company where it'd been in existence for a long time and some of the people that had worked there had worked there for you know years and years and they were always harping on about like oh back then we used to do it like this and mm. this happened and remember that time when this big scandal happened and when well, that's why like organizations new. want a certain turnover of staff don't yeah, they it's yeah. healthy but when yeah. that that percentage gets too high is when it mm. becomes yeah. dangerous yeah. yeah i mean you, you you've got to have that corporate memory haven't you you've got to have people who believe in the organization and have been around along 
uh, time in the organization to remind us of what, what it used to be like. Because I think what happens with those people is they bring on the values of the organization into whatever change you're, you're bringing. So you've got to still live your values. So you've got to be part of your values. But what we're talking about here is agility, adaptability, and ev- evolution. That's what we're talking about. So many, many organizations, and hey, we, we all know these big organizations, global organizations, national organizations that we thought were here forever. And they're not yeah, because they weren't adaptable, because they weren't agile, because they didn't change. Yeah. And that Often can happen. Shockingly, with, so. Absolutely. And that can happen with an SME. It can happen with a global brand, Blockbusters, mm. Debenhams, Woolworths. Uh, and right. there are so many more that come to mind. And these were big, big brands, you know. And if they can go to the wall simply by not being agile and adaptable, then what, what's to stop a smaller organization going to the wall as well? And, and Anna, going back to your point about, you know, you were talking about organizations, essentially, I'm going to paraphrase, but you said something like organizations didn't really understand the, the, the importance of looking after your people. And it's true. I think so many organizations call this kind of work soft skills, and it annoys me so much because getting people issues right are not soft skills. Yeah, you know, and they spent a fortune on us recruiters. Absolutely, this you know, three companies we were always make making like money. Eighty percent of yeah. your budget, don't they? Your yeah. people make up something like eighty percent of your budget. Mm. Why would you not invest in them? And technical skills will only take you so far. I always say that uh, you know, technical skills and IQ and qualifications will get you to the door. But how you evolve and how you thrive once you're through that door is not technical issues. That's down to your emotional intelligence. And the higher you go in leadership, the more your job is less about technical stuff, mechanistic stuff, the more it's about people. It's about relationship building. It's about empathy. It's about trust. It's about building that bridge of trust between in, uh, between yourself and your organization and tr- uh, and stakeholders. That's yeah. what it's all about. Yeah. There's a, a podcast well. from, you know, Stephen Bartlett recently. I saw a, a clip from him talking about that he's finally seen the light and he realizes the the higher you get in an organization, all your job is about getting good people in. That's yeah. all you are. You are That's someone who goes to find and, good and people to work in your business. And the more senior you become in the organization, beyond a certain point, uh, you could be a senior leader in an organization, but still be responsible for getting things done. But beyond that point, when you get to the executive level, it's not about you ordering people anymore. You don't have that power because you tend not to have line management responsibility for the people doing the work. Mm. So what you do have is probably line management management responsibility for the senior leaders who Leader. get people to yeah. do the work. So yeah. what you've got to do is influence. You've got to get good at negotiation, good at influencing, and therefore good at relationship building. Yeah. Uh, and where many, many organizations uh, uh, fail when they're trying to bring about significant changes the executive arm of the organization might have all the right ideas and the right sort of motivators to getting this change done but because they don't build that relationship with the directorial level with the level that's Mm. actually you know responsible for getting the changes done because they haven't built those relationships that bridge bridge of trust or they're not communicated it well enough it becomes diluted so that change never really comes through in the way or to the level that it was perceived to and so many executives teams are left frustrated and saying this was a brilliant idea we know this would be good for the organization for the customers or wherever else but why aren't we doing it exactly Mm. as we wanted it to be done it's because i think think a lot of the time the wrong people become leaders (laughs) because the the people maybe they just just have the wrong influence around them still they would just kiss the asses 
of other people to get them to that next level. And they're they're in it for the wrong reason as well. They don't want to leave. They don't want more responsibility. They just want more money that comes all that power trip that comes with that title so then you have there's actually a japanese word for it isn't there where you are promoted out of your area of expertise into something where you know fuck all you find as well like um i worked for a company where we we sold um gas and electricity old school this is like over 20 years ago like a whole massive call center we just had telephone and the data and you just literally call up businesses and say hey switch your gas and electricity twist that was it that was the job then the people that were like the leaders of like each like de- band of desks had like a i don't even know what they called them bar one each of them were just big people on like ego trips basically they just yeah. wanted to be like the one in charge maybe they were all right at sales and that's why they got that and then actually strangely you find this, they, don't you? they you, you, you find they didn't that get more money yeah, the crazy yeah. thing is they actually then made less money because they weren't selling anymore, but they had the title and they mm. had the the feeling that they were more and be like, actually, you were you were not a right salesperson, you were at the top because the top top salespeople didn't want that job because hang on, I'm yeah. not gonna make as much money. But, but then that there's feeds those, into the point that we were making people, earlier on, doesn't yeah. it? It feeds into that point of as you get to a certain level of leadership, mm. it's not about doing what you used to do or doing the doing. It's yeah. about doing the thinking and doing yeah. the influencing. So I've heard so many stories about, you know, people who were like the top salespeople in the organization. And because they were the top salespeople, they now get promoted to to lead yeah. a sales team because they think that because they're the best, yeah. they are going to now manage other sales. And they're sales not because that, they, don't have the pay, they don't have the patience. So sometimes we ask to get people, yeah, new people coming skills. and they'd say, I, Sit next to Anna. She'll she'll show you what to do. And I think exactly. no, because what how I do it can't be replicated. I don't know. I, I don't know. I teach you how to do it. You can listen in to calls or what, and I don't know. But you're not. You got to find your own way. You've got to find your own. And there's far more better people to do it with patience than than me for for sure. Because I'd be like, ask me questions. You can listen. <laughs> Yeah. Don't interrupt me. Don't take my time up. Yeah, and then but the I do think issue, people think where... oh, we need a manager. Oh, who wants to do it? Sometimes yeah. I've worked at places where it's like literally who wants to do it and whoever wants to do it gets it. And you're like, well, that, that um, can't be the best way of um, deciding who's going to manage the other, So what I found in many organizations is the assessment processes to, for, to, to, to actually choose the next leader are not very robust at all. You know, mm. sometimes it is about nepotism you know uh, yeah that as well yeah unconscious bias you know do they drink in the same pub as me do they talk mm. will i get on with this person oh, if I or do, how then... long have they been sometimes it's like longest served it's your yeah, turn sometimes yeah. it's yeah. Served. absolutely yeah. yeah sometimes it has but the other thing i find is so many people and i come across this an awful lot and i have no idea why why organizations do this but sometimes i come across people who say to me on, on one of my courses i've been a leader now for two years and this is the first bit of leadership training I've had. Wow. And I think, what? Just and expecting what, them to this know. This is so common. It is so yeah. common across so many organizations that people are not being invested enough in to develop the skills that they need to become the leaders that they want. Yeah. yeah. And, and the I think one person, of the problems can be is if you've worked in a team and then you do get promoted, that you do need that training because suddenly your relationship with your team members yeah, is completely course. different. And you you're not welcome to, to lunch anymore. You have to, you have to be <laughs> their leader and they're looking to you to be their leader. So you're not their mate anymore and you don't yeah. want to go to the pub. You shouldn't want to be going to the pub for lunch with them because, you know, it's a whole different relationship. And some people, I think, really struggle with that. It reminds me of an episode from Friends. 
Okay, so it's the episode where Chandler Bing is now the the leader in this team that he used to be a part of. And Phoebe goes to work for Chandler for a short while. And she gets on really, really well with the team. And she says one day, she says, oh, this is where you're going. She says, I'm going out. I'm going out to have a drink with the team. It's so-and-so's birthday. He says, well, why wasn't I invited? She says, because they don't like you. (laughs) <laughs> and he says, what do you mean that they don't like me? She says, they used to like you, but you're the boss now, so yeah. they don't like you. And it's, yeah. it, you know. Suck it up. And it is that, that. Yeah. it is that plain and simple, isn't it? Like yeah. if we get thrown, they're, they're all of a sudden gone from being on the call centre, on the phones with everyone, <laughs> to at the end of the call centre as call centre manager. And now they're not, you know, they're all of a sudden treated differently. They're supposed to, and yeah, no one's helped them. And also most people, not all people, but most people don't go out of their way to go and learn these things themselves. Even though yeah. these days you've got podcasts, yeah. you've got, you know, books that you could read. Most people but you don't do know what think, you don't know, do you? Yeah. Essentially at the end yeah, of the day. No one thinks, so. oh, I've been promoted yeah. to a leader. I'll go get a book about that or I'll go. They just don't like, that's just not in there. But you're so busy doing the job. You're not thinking about yeah. the philosophy of the mm. job and the, the, the culture and the essence of yeah. all of that kind of which is yeah. i guess where you come in i genuinely believe that this is what where podcasts really do come in handy not just for leadership but for any fun sort of fact area. we have the same podcast producer oh do we yes we do he's, he's awesome isn't he <laughs> yeah he is he's he is great no we don't great. like him <laughs> He's I'm one of the easiest, him. best people to work with. Yeah. I'm going to tell him I need to. <laughs> tell him Anna loves him. He listens to, anyway, he listens to every word we say. It's insane, yeah, really, he isn't does, it? Actually. Every single yeah. podcast about what we work. Uh, he, he will literally go together. through this sentence by sentence. So yeah, he's already yeah. found you out and eat it. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. He's on. Uh, anyway, two questions we ask all of our guests. First one is what makes you savvy? Me being typical me, what do you mean by savvy? What does savvy mean to you? We let people take that however they want. You? And you, you know, in America, I'll push that question they, back at you. What yeah, yeah. Mean in to America, you? some of them just say, "Oh, it makes me think of pirates." <laughs> so we're like, "Okay." It's, originally, it's a nautical term. Apparently, that's where that. Yeah, comes from. I didn't know that. Yeah, didn't we know didn't that. know that either. What but... makes what makes me savvy? And I'm understanding savvy in the term of me knowing stuff. Let's talk about the stuff that I do know because I, there's an awful lot of stuff I don't know. So, what makes me savvy when it comes to leadership? is this i have come from very simple upbringing uh, you know one of seven kids we were brought up in a two and a half bedroom terraced house in the back streets of wolverhampton there were nine of us living in this two and a half bedroom terraced house my dad was uh, one of these people typical asian dad he pushed us all all of us and consequently my brothers ended up being doctors one got a bit excited and became a doctor and a lawyer and sisters became <laughs> nurses Double and up. i was one if you like a bit of a rebel because i joined the police service but my dad has been a, a stalwart supporter of mine i think there was a lot of my upbringing that i've utilized throughout my entire life as in the police service it's kept me grounded So what makes me savvy is that I think I understand people and I understand what makes people tick and I understand what's important to people. And then, of course, I've layered it on with all the learning that I've done, all the books and the podcasts and the courses that I've ever been on, which has only gone to serve to prove to me that I think my basic instinct was right. I guess what makes me savvy is that knowing all of that, I understand the importance of people in everything that we do. And consequently, everything that I've learned is all about people. Aside from the technical skills that I've had to learn to do whatever it is that I need to do, fundamentally, getting it done to the best of my ability is all about me building relationships. And Mm -hmm. if I can do that as an introvert, there's no introvert out there that has got an excuse not to connect with people, 
not to go to meetings, not to speak from yeah. a platform. I mean, I teach public speaking as well. And, yeah. and if I can do all of these things as an introvert, no reason why anybody else shouldn't. Introversion is not a weakness. No, it's a and there are a sco- a, a, like toolbox of skills you can learn to help you in any situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and you have to see leadership like a toolkit. You know, yeah. you have to see leadership as not a one thing. It's, it's, it's like a, an accumulation of several things and you bring out the right tool at the right moment. Uh, yeah. So I guess that's what makes me savvy because I, I have learned how to do that. And now I teach Great. other people how to do that. Great answer. The second question is to recommend a book that has helped you along the way. I, I know there's probably what, loads. You, you, you emailed this from. to me, didn't you, about yeah. a week or so ago. Can you start thinking about a book? And I'll be honest with you, I have been racking my brain because there are so many books out I there. I think that, we make it worse, you know, when we email and tell people rather than when we don't <laughs> tell people. Yeah. And then they have to just think on it because it's almost like, well, I'm still what, thinking. What? Yeah. <laughs> Like so just pick the, first, pick the first one that comes to mind. It doesn't. We're, you but don't have to say this. I'm going to, talk, I'm going to talk about some of the books that I've more recently read because they are fresher in my mind. So there's yeah. a there's a couple of really really good books that I'm going to recommend. Can I pick three? But no, that's fine. That's fine. Of you course you can. Three. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. these three are really good for leadership because they are from for different ideas. Like it's a bit like Anita was saying, leadership is all about so many different tools. Mm. So the first one is uh, something called a book book called Black Box Thinking by a guy called. Matthew Syed, who is fast becoming one of my favorite authors out there in the leadership circle. So black box thinking is really about exploring your leadership culture to make it more like the airline industry. When things go wrong, don't look to seek blame, seek the solution, seek the cause of what went wrong. Uh, Don't be frightened to say sorry, seek to fix the issue without pointing fingers. So there's a really, really good book called Black Box Thinking. You have to read it to appreciate it. Then he wrote another book called Rebel Ideas. Rebel Ideas is very similar to what we were talking about. This book is all about diversity in your culture. And he challenges this concept very much as I believe that diversity is not demographic diversity, as he calls it. It's not about how many what percentage of X, Y, and Z that you got in your organization is how freely you're allowing them to think. You know, it's about breaking away from groupthink mentality, smashing those echo chambers uh, and bringing in diversity of thought. Uh, and then my final book would be uh, Start With Why by Simon Sinek, which is oh, yeah. another awesome book, really, really good book. But here's the thing. I think in terms of industry, I think we've gone through four phases. and We're in now in this brand new fourth phase. So I think if you go back 30, 40 years ago, everything was about what? What is it that we do? What are we going to get done? What will we do for you? That was a kind of language that I used to experience when I first came into pleasing, you know, around about the 70s and the 80s. That's the kind of language that used to, if you switched on any advert, this is what we'll do for you. This is what service will provide you. This is what kind of product we'll give to you. Then there was a subtle change. There's a subtle change around the 1990s where people started talking about how. How are we going to do this? And then you started seeing things like best value creeping into organizations, the concept of best value, the concept of ISO 9001 and these standards and that standards and investors in people and so forth and so on. That was all about the how. Then, of course, uh, um, Simon Sinek very beautifully and very eloquently brings in the third dimension, I, I believe, which is the why. And then people started thinking about why do we do this? Why is this important? 
Why do we need to do this? What is my purpose for being? What is my purpose for doing that? I know it's all very well and good, and it's really, really powerful and really important to understand your purpose. But I think what's happened now, since 2020, since the whole pandemic, it's really shifted our uh, our thinking. I think we've now moved on to a different dimension, and that dimension is who. Who are we? Who am I as an individual? What do I stand for? What are my values? Who do I work with? Who are we as an organization? What do we stand for? How do we define ourselves? Who are we as a society? And if you think about it, who do we want to impact? Isn't it? Who do we want to impact? So this question of who is so important. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the rhetoric that goes on, there's a lot of who in that. So let's just talk about politics for a very short while. Then let's look at UK and uh, American politics. There's a lot of who in the politics. Who do we want as a president of the United States of America? Do we want somebody like Donald Trump again? No, no, God, no, we don't want Donald. You know, it's that kind of rhetoric that's going on. And we had the same rhetoric here. So Boris Johnson, I don't think, was doing anything worse or better than any other prime minister could have done in these unforeseen incredible times that we live through. But actually, we judged him on who he was. Who does he show up as? Who is he? And then, you know, when it came to the final the final round of uh, prime, uh, electing that new leader, the Rishi Sunak scenario, he was going to throw his hat in the ring again. Why? He thought people loved him, the who again. So yeah. I think who is where we're at right now. And understanding the who as leaders in the world, we need to understand who is working for us. Who are we delivering a service for? Get That's why personal brands right? are so important within businesses. We don't want yeah, to deal yeah. with and we it don't want to deal with those faceless businesses anymore. Yeah, right, we want right. to know like who who's who is behind that? Who is the Absolutely. who is the face? Although I would think I think in the modern woke era we've become slightly obsessed with self and i'm not sure that's the most productive route and i'm not sure that's great for society as a whole or for the individual becoming obsessed with how you mm. feel about you know and all of that kind of thing so yeah i'm, I th- I'm not I sure think, we're not going I think a bit too far down into that context road. so you know when we're talking about the umbrella who this is about defining who we are as a society as organizations as cultures as uh, as people and I think that you can push that that envelope out, don't you? Don't you? And you get this with whatever it is in life. You'll always get people who push that envelope out that bit further, that bit further. And then around the edges, you'll, you'll have some more gray areas, questionable areas. So, um, you know, we talk about woke area. I, I don't, you know what? I actually don't know what that means. I don't know, you know, uh, uh, what's the name? Uh, Soella Braveman used the, the word woke karate. I have no idea what that woke-arati. means. Woke karate. I think no, people I need to be woke to some degree, because if we're not awake, then what are we? We're asleep. So I think we need to be awake. We need to be awake to who we are. We need to be awake about what we do. We need to be awake about our values. We need to be awake about the environment around us and how it truly operates so that we can actually ease in and fit into that environment and work within that environment. We do need to be awake, but how far you take that, that's a whole different thing. That's an individual thing. And you know, it's not for me to judge on that. If you're enjoying Marketing Made Easy, the podcast from Get Savvy Club, use your podcast app to rate, review and subscribe. Fabulous. So, yeah, interesting guy helping with a lot of interesting things. I think there's a lot of people out there that need it. Basically, you know, people that look after their staff and prioritise those them as their biggest asset do better in business, make more money, 
and have happier customers. So, you know, your staff are your biggest asset and your customers are really important to you and everything else will follow, really. But I think America seems to have cottoned on to that a bit sooner than we have, actually. But we are getting there, aren't we? Like lots of um, companies in America have creches in them, big companies, obviously, so that you can, for people like women, mainly, who um, have children, can still carry on working and their child isn't too far away and is looked after and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg and little things like that. And I think that he was right to say it's almost demeaning to call it a soft skill or a soft benefit. Yeah. All these things come together and, and matter. And I think it's amazing from an ex-recruiter's point of view how much certain companies waste, and I will say waste, in recruiting costs just because they just don't get a little bit better day-to-day mm. in the business. Like, yeah, why? you see that all the time. Yeah, same companies spend an absolute fortune because they'd get people on board, but they wouldn't be able to keep them because they yeah. just didn't look after them. So it does, it can I actually think, save you money as well. Hopefully it'll start to change now because when like people, are, there's an abundance of workforce out there, then they don't need to offer anything more than a, an agreement to pay you yeah. this money. But now it's harder to find people and all that stuff comes in and becomes more important, doesn't it? So yeah, hopefully it'll, there'll be a slight culture shift as we move through the next He said years. as well, didn't he, about the COVID times, that made a difference because all of a yeah. sudden people were like, they stopped doing what they've probably been doing for years and years and years and saw what it was like if they worked from home. And now... Well, the great resignation a... followed from yeah. that, didn't it? And then so, people, although I'm not okay. sure how great that was. No. But it's funny I think because, it's more um, people scared to move on from their job because they're thinking if they can stay in their job, then they'll, you know, if another COVID situation comes, they'll get paid. They won't be the ones that are just let go or whatever. I don't know. But I had to go somewhere and be somewhere in the centre of town yesterday at 9am and so for I haven't for years had to go through rush hour, not proper rush hour, getting into a city centre for 9am. And I did yesterday and it's like just sat in traffic. And I was with my daughter and I said, you know, this is this just reminds me of having, you know, a proper job. And I mm. just for this one reason alone, I couldn't go and get a proper job because with, you know, I literally go from upstairs to downstairs and I'm at work. Um, yeah. I don't well, often we have to go places, but we like plan our times around not having to be somewhere at 9am. Mm. And I was saying to my daughter, you know, and make sure that you um, work hard and can have your own business because otherwise you've got 40 years of doing this kind of commute every single yeah. day and it's soul-sucking often, isn't it? Yeah, I remember like before I could drive as well, getting on the bus and like, but but that part of that I quite enjoyed though, just daydreaming, looking out the window, listening to my music. That's um, all right because you're not doing. having to yeah. like, stop start traffic. Yeah, but the battle of the traffic and then the parking and the cost of that as well actually. Mm. Like how much your car costs, how much your petrol costs, how much how much do you spend and how much time do you waste just even just getting to the door of your job? Like I bet you work the fir- people work the first hour, two hours just to pay off. Well, I was saying, telling them my job when I first moved up to Leicester, I worked, I lived in Nottingham and I worked for Alliance and Leicester in their marketing department in Leicester. And uh, so I used to leave my home at half seven in the morning and I often got home at um, half seven, eight mm. in the evening. And that was my general work day. So then, because I'm an early to bed and always have been, you know, I'd be in bed by 10. So I'd have like two hours in the evening. By the time I had dinner and what have you, that was it gone. And so Monday to Friday was pretty much gone. And that's why the weekends are so precious to people, you know, and then you go anywhere and it's really busy everywhere. Any thoughts on the podcast? Let us know. If you want to have a chance of winning one of the three books that called 
shouted at. I knew one of them. I knew the Simon. Shouted uh, at. Shouted at. Shouted at. Oh, and was it shouted at? Shouted at. If you want to win them books, you just need to screenshot this episode and share it on social media, and we will pick one out and you get to win it. But we'll see you on the next. No, episode. I'll say again. Anyway, whatever it is you're doing, have a fantastic rest of your day. That was Marketing Made Easy, the podcast from Get Savvy Club. If you enjoyed it, connect with us on social media. Just search Get Savvy Club.